the Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. The Onyx Report is a critical analysis uh, show focusing on the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm your host, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. The show will examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. All right. So what I'd like to do today is really kind of introduce some of the concepts and ideas that really are going to frame the show. All right. My work for the last, uh, I'd say, seven or eight years has been heavily steeped in analyzing the lives of black men and articulating truths that, for the most part, go ignored. Um, there is a movement that I'm a part of, particularly in the academy, referred to as black male studies. Um, myself and a number of key other individuals have been pushing for the development of this because there's so many areas of black male life that have really gone um, un unregarded. They're, they're under the table. And for the most part, people tend to think that we already know all we can know about black males. There's nothing else to talk about, whether it has to do with black males being criminalistic, violent, uh, anti-family, whether it has to do with black males, uh, you know, going to prison. The idea, even in the black community, often, is that there's really nothing new to say about black males. And I'm here to point out that there's actually quite a bit that's been left out of the dialogue that greatly impacts black male life on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, the way I approach that is through a concept that I developed called black masculinism. Uh, and if you want to read more about that, you can go to my blog, uh, which is uh, at www.newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com, uh, or you can go to my website, um, uh, thasanjohnson.com, thasanjohnson.com, and you can kind of look into it from there, and there's all kinds of things you can check into. But black masculinism is a concept that I developed to really kind of serve as uh, a framework for how to study black males beyond the tropes that we think we already have, right? So uh, one of the things I kind of say about it is black masculinism itself is the centering of black males across age, class, and sexuality, thus framing the actual state of black male life in measurable terms. Uh, advocating for black male studies, we endeavor to empirically con contextualize the major pillars that indicate black males' quality of life whether it has to do with carceral policy, treatment in prison, criminal and civil sentencing, causes of death, health, employment, income, wealth, you name it, across the board. And there are many others that I haven't named. And throughout the course of uh, expanding on these ideas and developing you know, newer and newer episodes, we're going to look at a lot of these different things. And there's going to be a strong bent toward looking at education, um, intimate partner experiences, uh, uh, abuse, rape, things of that nature, most particularly ideas that most uh, don't associate with black males, unless black males are the aggressors. Uh, and of course, there'll be more traditional areas uh, like fatherhood, you know, marriage, things of that nature. But again, we're going to approach them from a black masculinist standpoint. So the, 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 the subject may be fairly traditional, but the approach is going to advocate for some things that aren't part of the mainstream dialogue about black men. Um, there's going to be some some jargon because I am a scholar. So there are some areas that I write about and I use frequently in my research 
uh, some of which are areas we're all familiar with, some of which are concepts that I've come up with. But these are going to be areas of analysis that we'll be using consistently uh, in the discussion. Uh, areas of analysis for this in regard to black masculinism might be anti-black misandry. And I'll explain more about what that is. Of course, white supremacy, uh, black gynarchy. We're going to talk about what is what that is. The black male dual economy. I'll be explaining that. Uh, of course, we'll deal with socioeconomic underdevelopment, outgroup male treatment, institutional exclusion from wealth development. Uh, we'll be looking at a number of those different areas, and I'll explain what I mean by that, those things when we continue on. But these are things that are crucial to understand in black male life that most don't bother to deal with, especially when, you know, discussing, you know, what they believe to be uh, black males contributions to society. Uh, and we'll be doing this across mediums. You know, history is going to be a foundational aspect of this discussion. Uh, we, we're going to he stay heavily focused. Well, I don't want to say heavily because I don't want to, you know, make it seem like all we're going to be doing is studying empirical data. But that plays a significant role in understanding black male life. So there will be a, a fair portion of empirical data used, mainly because when you talk about black males, people are are content with using stereotypes. And, and, and assumptions and personal experiences to speak for a whole demographic of 21 or so million black men. And, and people are fine with that. Um, and, and that doesn't really work for me. Um, so we'll be talking about film. We'll be talking about literature. We'll be talking about politics. We'll be talking about history, current events. Uh, and yeah, I will even I will engage in some you know personal experiences, but not as a way to categorize all black men, but just as a way to kind of give you a sense of where I'm coming from. Okay. So those are the kind of areas that we're going to get into on this show. And so therefore, when I say black masculinism, it really is about looking for looking at black men and black male life, because black male life would, would also include children. And I'm talking everything from in the womb to elder statehood. I'm looking across the, the spectrum of age uh, um, and, and the various experiences we have, whether it's popularly discussed or not, and really framing what black male life looks like beyond the most popular tropes. Um, and so what I'd like to do, having kind of put that out there, is kind of talk a little bit about why it's important. Why is it important that we talk about black males? Why is it important that we have a black masculinist focus? Because for the most part, what we assume to know and what we assume to believe is true about black males is often inaccurate. And more than that, the level of um, importance or should I say lack of importance uh, for many people about black male life is, pro is a problem. So today is uh, the day after Father's Day. And as a father myself to a 13 year old son, I'm a single parent. Um, I can tell you that I have witnessed generations of black males as fathers be virtually ignored. And that to me is only increased, especially if you're talking about black male single parent fathers, like single fathers. Uh, there's really a dismissal of the black male experience. And, and it's really a dismissal from the family too. Black males have kind of been excluded from memory, even in regard to the family. You know, so, you know, yesterday being Father's Day, one of the things that um, myself and a number of people on on social media, my, my social media platform on Facebook, for example, we talked about the absence of messages uh, affirming black fatherhood. And even amongst the messages that slightly referenced black fatherhood, the very purposeful attempt 
to sideline and undermine the presence of black fathers, shifting the conversation to other areas. Right. And, and those are the kinds of things that I kind of want to deal with a little bit. So it's, it's actually interesting. It's actually symbolic in a way that we're starting this show with fatherhood on Father's Day and looking at the absence of it. Um, that's one of the things that I think is really crucially important. The black fathers and, and, and in that we're not talking about something that solely gets dismissed during slavery. We can definitely talk about um, what fatherhood looks like during slavery. But as I go into the history of it, you know, we're going to look at how that's actually taken on a different bent post 1930s and then again in the 1960s and on. What happens to even the very idea of black fatherhood, especially when now it's almost fraught with hostile dismissal, right? You know, people happily talking about how they've replaced fatherhood, happily, you know, talking about one example is, as I'm sure you've probably seen, is how many people go out of their way to focus on mothers on Father's Day in the black community. And we understand why. Right. There's a high percentage of single motherhood, single parenthood, I should say, in the black community, single motherhood in particular. And that's kind of understandable, although I would say most don't understand the reasons. And we got plenty of time. We'll stretch that. We'll, we'll deal with that. But the attempt to replace fathers is filled with an, an angst, filled with a, a, almost an aggression toward the very idea of black fathers, even when black fathers are present. Right. Even when black fathers are present. And I think that's something that. That that kind of lets us know why we're doing the show. The reason I'm doing this, and and it's not even just about the show. It's also about my research. Everything I do, for the most part, professionally, is tied to black males. And the reason for that is because what we call anti-black misandry, right? The the the, the assumed and, and there's a formal definition I'll read later, but just for the moment, um, just the the really kind of institutionalized hatred of black men. That's not only located in the larger society, but even within the community. Right. And that's a hatred that comes from children, from women and even from men themselves. Right. This kind of idea that that black men are to be hated or to be dismissed is rooted in a frustration and anger that I argue has been very orchestrated. Right. But for the most part, the result of it is what I'm here to kind of introduce at the moment to explain why we're doing the show. The result of that is we're at a point where fatherhood, black fatherhood, is addressed with um, disdain. It's addressed with frustration. People actually have an active, um, you know, kind of, of, of anger about it. And if not an anger, uh, a, a, a willful desire to ignore, right? you know, black men and black fatherhood altogether. So we don't see that on days like Mother's Day. Mothers are lauded. You know, mothers are, are, are sought after. Mothers are appreciated, even to the extent of, uh, you know, really kind of downplaying the damage that mothers can do to children and families. You know, of course, because mothers tend to be caregivers to children far more often than fathers, the, the levels of abuse from mothers to children is much higher than it is from fathers. But we don't talk about that even on Mother's Day because we laud mothers. Yet on Father's Day, um, if there's not a dismissal, there's an emphasis on what black men must not be doing. And in that vein, people's individual stories become very popular. They become very useful and somehow serve as a kind of shorthand truth that uh, just has to be accepted. Um, and so that kind of thing is something that's gone on, you know, I won't say completely under the radar because most black men are familiar with it, but it's been acceptable. And I would argue for many years, black men didn't even say much about it, but it's, it, I think it's reaching a different point 
where men are starting to get frustrated with the constant dismissal of the the value of fatherhood, right? We've been trying to dismiss the very idea of the nuclear family and replace it uh, with an idea that, you know, women can do it all and that's all that's really necessary. Um, Now, much appreciation to the women that have, my mother included, but that doesn't necessarily mean that fathers have no place. And when you look at the well-being of families uh, with mothers and fathers both present, as long as there isn't an extreme amount of dysfunction or abuse, you actually see fathers make a huge contribution from monetary contribution to the stability of the child. And that kind of thing is something that gets dismissed. So it, it really sets us up well to, to look at why this kind of show is done, because I argue that doesn't just happen on issues like Father's Day. There's a wealth of other areas where we really need to talk about you know, the absence and the, and the dismissal of black males. But in this instance, the dismissal from the family, so to speak, in terms of memory and acknowledgement is key. All right. And part of this goes back to the treatment of black men. Right. We clearly if we're talking about, you know, um, this from an American context, we have to start with uh, the treatment and perception of black men during slavery. Black men were for the most part considered labor and, and for the most part, they were wealth builders, you know, for white society. Uh, but even if you look at the earliest documentation, there was an active attempt to make sure that they weren't able to act out forms of manhood that were affirming. Whether that was articulating a politic, whether that was, um, you know, choosing a, a, a partner to marry or, you know, choosing a wife, uh, choosing when to have children, all of those kind of things um, in and of themselves were not something that black men were for the most part allowed to do. And that, of course, includes accrue any wealth, own any property, so on and so forth. And that was by policy. Right. So that said, that cemented a kind of idea that black men were ineffective. And this is kind of supported by um, uh, really the replacement of black men for black women, even by white male slave owners. And, you know, so that kind of notion really set the backdrop for that. Uh, what we're going to do, though, how I'm going to come back and talk about that. We're going to take a little break um, and then we'll come back and start with the very idea of, of how black men have gotten to the state they're in. Okay, and we're back. Looking at um, black men and how we get to a diminished state in American society that affects how we're viewed even within the community. I started out by talking a little bit about slavery and the perception of uh, black men at that time um, and the role that even slave owners played in redynamicking and reframing uh, the dynamic of the black family. Um, and that comes down to even, you know, E. Franklin Frazier's work, The Black Family, when he even talks about who had, um, you know, the, the right to make decisions about, you know, control of the cabin, who got to live there, who could reproduce, things of that nature. Those were not things that black men often were in a position to decide due to slave owners' influence that was often black women. Transition that um, into you know, across history, and we look at the, the, the perception and, and, and idea of black manhood, um, it's downplayed significantly. Now, I'm going to skip ahead, and there's other areas I'm going to cover in, in, in different conversations, but for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to skip ahead to the 1960s, and we'll look at the development of gender studies and what role that plays. Now, in the academy, the ideas that 
you know, prompt the movements from the 1960s on are especially found in the institution, in the academy itself, right? And the first major kicking in of the door by the black community in particular was the development of black studies, right? Black studies became the foundation of, um, you know, a new way of perceiving black folk in the academy, but and, and, and while engaging a politic that came from outside of the academy, a, a politic that came from the grassroots, Right. So that being said, the development of black studies opened the door to the development of a lot of other fields from Chicano Latino studies to Asian studies. You name it. Um, One of the major contributions, of course, that comes out of that whole dialogue is women's studies and women's studies focused, you know, especially on middle aged white women. That was part of their kind of politic at the time. But for the most part, it inadvertently lended itself to the development of black feminism. Right. So, you know, white feminism, of course, played a huge role in the development of women's studies, taking their cues from black studies and trying to demand space, trying to carve out space in the academy. Uh, And then from there, influencing a wide variety of fields Uh, and, of course, spawning or helping to spawn the development of uh, black feminism. Early ideas in the 60s and 70s of gender and the politics of, of women on the street helped to push a discussion about gender that we had never really had. One of the problems as it pertains to black males is because this was coming from middle-aged white women, middle, middle-aged, middle-class white women for the most part, um, Washington, that said, what it ends up doing for black males is affirming a series of racist assumptions that were already present in American society. And in many ways, excluding men, even across race, from any competent dialogue about their place and gender. And what do I mean by that? Well, to this day, if you ask an average student walking a college campus, do you want to take a gender studies class? Their assumption is going to be that it's a class on women and girls or women and or girls. Most people are not going to assume that it's a class on males of any age, let alone black males. I teach a black male studies course every spring. Um, called the Black Male Experience at Fresno State. And that's one of the challenges that I have when I when it comes to getting students in the class, because they don't realize that gender studies can pertain to men. And that, that's a problem in and of itself that I am rooting in how uh, gender studies starts. It starts as women's studies. And for the most part, men are generally characterized as relating to gender only in terms of how they problematize women's experiences. That's the way men are engaged. And and therefore, when you deal with black feminism and you start to look at how black men are engaged, whether you're talking about bell hooks, whether you're talking about a variety of of other early um, feminists that were integral to the development of the the field. You can talk about Angela Davis. You know, there's a wide number of feminists, uh, some of whom are active scholars, some are writers. Uh, we're going to look at Michelle Wallace's Black Macho probably in a future episode. These kind of, kinds of works um, really parroted what we saw happening with white women and white men. And for the most part, what that meant was black men were oppressive, they were patriarchal, they were, they were abusive. And this is the most popular strain of analysis in the 60s and 70s toward men, and especially going into the 80s toward black men. And we see that transition to the screen, right? And we see films like Color Purple, works by Alice Walker via Oprah Winfrey, uh, or works by Terry McMillan, the most popular kind of uh, productions dealing with gender center women as the standard for gender and problematize men as oppressive 
uh, oppressive entities that hamper uh, women's experiences and promote injustice, right? And black men become the kind of face of this dynamic uh, across the board, I would argue. But the problem with this approach is that it does a couple things. It tells us that black men, one, have no gender because gender studies doesn't really include them except in very particular tropes. And two, it dehumanizes black men to the degree that using them as a backdrop for your experience automatically sort of frames whichever demographic you're using, and in this case, I'm talking about black women, as inherently heroic and pure, right? So all you really need to do once you've established that black men are a problem is really frame them against another group, and then from there, talk about your experience. And in that context, black men are assumed to be these villainous characters, almost like something straight out of a comic book. And it's received for the most part, uh, mainly because there's a backdrop of stereotype going back to the 1800s that really framed black men as inhuman, as hypersexual, as uh, violent, criminalistic, so on and so forth. And because that legacy late 1800s, especially through the 1900s. And this is very impactful, most particularly after slavery, because the goal at that time was to shape public opinion. The fear that some whites had, or I would, I would argue many whites, particularly in the South, was that if you have this newly, quote unquote, freed population that has the power to vote on equal terms with white society, there could be a huge transformation. So a couple of things you know, need to happen. One, we need to make sure by policy that blacks can't vote. And at the time, only men could vote. So it was a question of making sure black men couldn't vote. But then on top of that, the next stage was to make sure that public opinion was shaped against black men. So this is where these stereotypes take on a more popular tint, tinge that we, in a way we hadn't really seen. Even though those stereotypes were present during slavery, they take on a greater importance because now it's about making sure public opinion helps to keep them in their quote unquote place. Right. So from there, uh, this notion of making sure policy doesn't allow for blacks to vote and you have the development of the Klan. Right. Uh, as a, a, And that's just one group, but a group that's that's purpose is to take underclass and up through middle class white men. And have them use violence to prevent um, black people and especially black men from being able to really see themselves as participants in society, making sure that they're not willing to. And, and what we don't say when we talk about lynching, what we don't say when we talk about these kind of things, we talk about them as part of the black experience. And, yeah, they are. But because of what I believe to be a degree of uh, deference, a degree of um, civility Black men are not talked about as the, the brunt of those victims, right? So in other words, um, black men were primarily the demographic in the black community, community sought out to be brutalized. And in the overwhelming majority of those cases, the genital abuse and, and brutalization of black males uh, was common, which I think you know, really lets us know that, that the act of terrorizing the black community was gendered. Racism is gendered. White supremacy is gendered, and the targeting of black men as the repository of that violence was not an accident or a coincidence. A coincidence, and we dismiss that now. We we even to this day talk about police brutality strictly as something that happens to black people, or you know, or Latinos. But for the most part, when we talk about it in regard to black people, we just say, well, police brutality. But we don't pay attention to the fact that that's gender. So as of June fourteenth of two thousand nineteen, for example, there's been fifty two black men who have been brutalized by police officers and two black women. 
And that's according to the Washington uh, Post. And so that kind of lets us know that that practice hasn't gone anywhere. It's still in play. Usually it's about 200 to 300 black men per year and about 10 to 20 black women. But that kind of gender dynamic is evident in a lot of different areas. And because we don't talk about it, most people don't know that. So we dismiss and limit the discussion down to race on a generic plane. But we really don't talk about how many of these things are targeted at black men and thus, you know, let us know that there is something we need to look at. Now, I am not trying to say that no other demographic in the black community is important, not by any stretch. But I am saying the experiences of black men, I really think, have been kind of buried and need to be pulled out and looked at. And so that's the goal of this show is to kind of do that and examine it in a wide variety of contexts. Because the same dynamic I talked about with police brutality or police homicide, we can talk about the same thing in incarceration. We can talk about it with rape. We can talk about it with child abuse. We can talk about it with lack of wealth or underdevelopment, uh, you know, being falsely accused. All of these dynamics come that are they're hugely gendered, despite that most people don't know. And so we're going to be looking at how that works and to what extent and what it's actually done to the black community, especially in regard to black men. So I want to welcome you to the Onyx Report. I hope you come back and, and, and join me as we begin to um, frame what the black male experience really is. Um, as for me, you can find me online in a number of different places. Um, I will have links uh, on the main menu here to my Facebook page, to my Twitter um, you can always go to my website, www.thassanjohnson.com. You can go to my blog, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. You can find me on YouTube as well under Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. And I'm going to mirror these shows on all of those areas so you can actually be able to take them in as well as with some of the other data I have. Um, so for that, I want to welcome you to the Onyx Report and thank you for your time. <laughs> 